This morning we turn in our copy of God's Word to Colossians 1. So would you turn there now if you have not already? Colossians chapter 1. This morning we're considering verses 9 through 14. But as we're in the middle of this section, Paul's prayer, let's begin reading in verse 1 for a bit of context. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me as we consider God's Word together? Father, with the psalmist, we gladly confess that your testimonies are true and righteous forever. And in acknowledging that, we ask in response that you would give us understanding that we might live. Seeing that they are true, seeing that they are righteous, seeing that they are good and that they are enduring, Lord, our great need this morning is for you to help us that we might not only see their righteousness and their goodness, the instruction that comes from your word, that we might hear and receive, that we too might find the life that is found within your life-giving word. So, Father, we pray that you'd be faithful to your promise to open your word to us, that you would send your spirit to give light and illumination that we might understand, to hear and receive. Lord, that you would cause your word to bring forth the fruit that you promised that it would. Lord, help us in regards to the very truth that is proclaimed and, and declared here in Scripture. Lord, we long and we're so aware of the great need that we have for endurance, the great need that we have for strengthening, the great lack of power and might that we have in our own lives. But we look to you this morning as the one who is sufficient in all things, giving thanks to you, our Father, who has secured all of this because of Christ's gracious work on our behalf. So take what you have what you've given to us in your Son, and that what you long to apply to us by your Spirit, and make it so in our lives that it might bear fruit to the praise of your grace, we pray. Amen. Pray for me. How often have those very words been texted? 
spoken, written from one believer to another. Perhaps you've done so even this week. Somebody asks, how's it going? And you just responded with three words. Pray for me. But pray for what? Sometimes that's the easy answer. Just pray for me. And we know what that means in part, but how do we go beyond that? What, what, is, what is a helpful response to that request, just pray for me? And oftentimes we make such a request in, in difficult circumstances, when things are not going easy, because of trying circumstances, maybe because of anxiety or worry, maybe because of a particular pain or concern, particular need. And so we are prompted to say, maybe more than at other times, pray for me. But what sort of prayers do we find modeled in Scripture? What does the Apostle Paul pray for? What does Peter pray for? I wonder, is it possible that the sort of prayers that we so often offer up end up being mundane and even ineffectual because we've neglected the emphasis of Scripture and essentially the powerhouse of Christian living when we neglect or forget or are just flat ignorant of the model of praying and the substance of the prayers that we have for us in Scripture. We just consider our own practice of prayer. Perhaps you pray when things are going well, and those are probably prayers of thanksgiving. You're brought to this point where you say, thank you, Lord, and you rejoice in giving thanks in, in those moments. But have you found, like me, that you oftentimes pray a bit more fervently with greater concern when things are difficult, when things are going badly, when you're aware of just how big the need is that you lean in a little bit more, you pray a little bit longer with a little more clarity, a little more adverbs, you're you're a little more intentional in those seasons. And that's not wrong. But if we pray only in those times, or particularly zealously only in those times, then we are overlooking a major emphasis in Scripture. And Paul prays for the faithful brothers and sisters at Colossae as a helpful encouragement and perhaps a correction this morning for us in our praying. Notice the context of what Paul does here. Since the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing among this Colossian church, Paul does not just merely give thanks for this fruit, but he actually sees the presence of this fruit as the motivation for further prayer. It would be very logical and very easy to say, I've heard of your faith and your love, and I thank God for that. Anyways, on to what I wanted to talk about. He actually recognizes the presence of that good gospel fruit, and it motivates further prayer more specific prayer. Their faith in Christ, their love for the saints was exemplary, and their testimony of this had gotten its way back to Paul. And upon hearing of this good news, of the good fruit in the church of Colossae, it's provoked constant, faithful prayer on behalf of these Christians. So if this is true, what's it mean for us? What I want us to see this morning is that as followers of Christ, we're not only to give thanks, but to give, and not only to give thanks for good fruit in the lives of others, but recognizing the goodness of that fruit and praying for even greater growth. Give thanks 
Yes. Give thanks for the fruit in the lives of others. Absolutely. But notice what that fruit is and pray for even greater growth. Notice how this is modeled for us here in Colossians. Essentially what Paul says is that they would know God's plan and that they would live for his pleasure. We can break down verses 9 through 14 according to those two points. This is a prayer that they would know God's plan and that they would live for his pleasure. Look back at verse 9. He's concerned with them knowing this plan. He says, And so, in light of all of that, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Have you noticed in your life how often the will of God is understood as this veiled mystery that you must figure out in order to take the next step in your life? What's the will of God for my life right here? Have you noticed how often Christians approach the will of God as if it was some mythic quest that they need to wade through in order to make specific decisions about college or a spouse or a home or a job or retirement? But have you also noticed that how within Scripture, it's less concerned about the circumstantial and situational will of God and much more concerned about emphasizing the aim or the attitudes, the character and the manner of life, which is the will of God? I don't think that's a coincidence. Paul tells us, as he prays, that they would know God's will. And in praying that they would know God's will, that tells us a couple of things. Most obvious, but it has to be said, if Paul is praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that means, by default, that the plan of God is knowable. It is not, as you may misunderstand it to be, a mythic quest to find what you're supposed to do in the next step. The will of God, the plan of God, is knowable. When Paul speaks of the will of God here, he speaks of the commanding will of God, meaning the commands that he's given for his people to obey. This is the way. Walk in it. That's the will of God. And this means that the prescriptive will of God is revealed and it's knowable. Therefore, it's good and it's reasonable that the people of God would be filled up with this knowledge of God's will. And when Paul speaks of being filled, don't think of a sense of like a a spatial filling, some sort of spatial event that it causes it to be filled, but filled in the sense of a figure of speech. Uh, This word, it's used elsewhere in the sense of this verb referring to people who are known by these various attributes, meaning that they're so filled with joy that that it's evident, that they're filled with peace, that they're filled with goodness, that it, it dominates It overflows. It is the tone that marks them out. Be filled with the knowledge of his will. Essentially what Paul is saying is we've heard of the good fruit that's bearing among you, and we are now praying that in your faith in Christ, your love for all the saints, that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want you to know God's plan. And I want you to know that his plan is knowable. 
But number two, in praying that they would know God's plan, what that means, as we see, is that this plan of God is knowable in Christ. The combination of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding that Paul ties together there in verse 9, those words are carefully chosen. He's going to keep coming back to these words, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. It's the very same three words that are used in chapter 2. You want to just turn over there, you'll see them there in verses 2 and 3. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. There in that context, Paul is focusing in on Christ as set in contrast to the false teachers. Meaning, there are these categories of knowledge and wisdom and understanding, and these categories, they're not subjective. But they're objective in that they're found in this person who is Christ. And therefore, this sort of knowledge of his will is knowable because it's been revealed objectively in Jesus. This is not some mystical, subjective revelation where you aim to discern spiritual wisdom by some sort of thought or impression or feeling. The sort of knowledge that Paul is praying for and talking about here has been given to us in the Word of God, in Scripture, and in nowhere else. It is knowable because it's been revealed in Christ. The overwhelming force of this letter in its four chapters is to show that Christ is the ultimate source of wisdom, and this source of wisdom is revealed in the divine Word through His Spirit. Again, look back at verse 2 of chapter 2. In Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The thing that Paul is praying for, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Keep reading the letter. He's saying that thing that I'm praying for is in Christ. He's not sending them out to go to some hill away in the woods and to just quiet themselves and to find some sense of inner light to find greater knowledge or wisdom. He's sending them directly directly to God the Son. In Him is found all of this knowledge and wisdom that I'm praying that you would be filled up with. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The plan of God is knowable because the plan of God is revealed in Christ, and Christ is revealed in His Word. That's the connection that Paul is seeking to make. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures, all the storehouse of all the wisdom and and learning and, and the specific knowledge that you will need, it's in Him. And He has spoken. His Word is before you. So let that Word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's the same idea, being filled. Let it dwell in you richly. And speak that Word to one another. Admonish one another. The sort of counsel that you give to one another. It's not the just, well, I think it means this. It's the wisdom of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that the wisdom that you're spouting is the wisdom of God. Oh, and by the way, when you sing, it should be filled with this sort of wisdom, the sort of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
the point that Paul is praying is that God would fill these believers so that they would have such a clear knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and understanding, not just so they'd have big heads. Not just so that they could understand systematic theology. There's a so that clause here. And this is really the remainder of what Paul gets to. I want you to be filled with this knowledge so that you will build your ethical life skillfully. I want your manner of life to be marked out by this will of God. What this means then is that regardless of culture, regardless of your particular circumstance in life, your stage in life, that God equips you and expects you to live a certain way. If his knowledge, the knowledge of his will is knowable, and it's revealed in Christ... That means, Christian, and non-Christian, that God has revealed himself and he expects us to live in a certain way. And that way is revealed in his word. Are you single? Maybe that's your situation, your stage of life, the particular circumstance you are in. Okay, well how... Has God, and in what way has God revealed to you as the priority and responsibility for as to how you are to live in this season? Are you married? Well, what has God revealed concerning how husbands are to live or how wives are to live? That is the will of God for your life. Be filled in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Are you a parent? Are you working a job? Or do you have a surplus of free time? Regardless, what do the scriptures teach and what have they revealed about your situation? Are you healthy? Are you sick? Are you in abundance? Are you in lack? Friends, the situation in some ways is irregardless because the will of God has been revealed plainly and fully to us in Christ in the word of God. And we say, oh, this is how I'm to live here. And if you're not seeing this already, I want you to see how wonderfully freeing this is. As we walk through life and we face circumstances that we're just flat out unsure of what we should do. Because, just you're, because you're in a particular season of life doesn't mean you have it all figured out. This or that, here or there, stop or go. And in one sense... What's freeing about this is that it's all worked out as we move forward, thinking, speaking, responding, or as Paul is going to say, walking, according to the revealed will of God. There are many circumstances, unknowns, unfolding developments in my life that I am uncertain as to how they will turn out. As with Every single one of you. But I am confident in all of that uncertainty that God's word has given me great clarity as to how I am to walk through them. That much I know. And so, Christians then leave the unfolding of providence to God. And they rest joyfully walking according to the spiritual wisdom and knowledge that God has revealed in his son in his word. In a sense, a Christian says, I'm going to let God be God. 
and I'm going to be a faithful follower. And he's revealed his will to me as this. And so I can rest joyfully knowing that, okay, in this particular season, there are many unknowns, and I need great wisdom. And that wisdom is going to come by looking to what he's revealed as to how I'm to live in this manner. And then I can go into that uncertainty saying, I'm in the will of God. Somebody will look at you and say, how can you be so certain you're in the will of God? Uh, Let me tell you. Right now, I happen to be working a job, and so I know the manner about in which I'm supposed to work as unto the Lord. In all righteousness, not pilfering, as Timothy would say, being an example. Well, I'm a husband or I'm a wife. Right now, I'm a student. I'm a child. I know what children are supposed to do. Obey your parents. They can say, this is the will of God. And then they leave the providence of God to unfold as God deems fit. And they say, thanks be to God. I'm in the will of God. Paul prays that they would know the plan. But then he goes on to pray. A so that. But before he gets there, we need to remind ourselves of one particular point. In regards to the will of God and praying for one another, as we grow in our faithfulness to pray for one another, you may not know the particular details of someone's life. You may not know how their calendar is going to be filled this week. But it would be wrong of you to think that you don't know how to pray for them. The emphasis of Scripture and what we're saying, it's less about the individual circumstances and more about the universal focus of Christian living. So I may not know what your particular week is going to look like. But I can faithfully pray for you in all confidence and saying, Father, fill them with the knowledge of your will. Make their lives to be marked out and defined by spiritual wisdom and biblical understanding. As they go into their week, give them the great confidence that they are in your will as they walk according to all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is a wonderfully biblical and wonderfully faithful prayer to pray for one another, even if we don't know the particular circumstances of what somebody else may be going through. Paul prays that they would know the plan, but then secondly, let's move on, that they would live for his pleasure. Verse 10, so as, there's the hinge, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Do you see the connection between verse 9 and the following verses? The purpose of knowing God's will is to live worthily unto His pleasure. That's the reason. Knowing God's will should cultivate godly conduct in our lives. And as the will of God defines where and how the people of God are to live. So Paul uses this phrase here, to walk. He speaks of the walk of these believers. And as we know, walking is 
figurative language for living. And so to walk worthy, in that sense, is to walk in what is in accord with, or what is fitting, or what is consistent. The character and the reputation of a believer is to be the reflection of Christ as we're united to him being conformed to his image. Filled with the knowledge of his will, so that you may walk in a manner worthy. For example, chapter 3, verse 13. Paul pulls to the surface that we are actually commanded to forgive one another. That's our walk. How are we to walk? Well, we're to forgive. And the basis of this command is that just as the Lord has forgiven you, So what he's saying is that we live in a certain way because of Christ. We reflect Jesus because we are united to Jesus. And so Paul says that this is done in order that we would fully please him. Now it's good to remember that before Christ we exist and we seek to serve primarily, whether we recognize it or not, to please ourselves. That is our primary driving motivation for what we do and what we put our hands to. I'm seeking to please myself. I want my life to be as comfortable as it can be, as convenient as it can be for my standards. But in Christ, we are being formed and transformed to no longer just please ourselves, but we now long to please Christ, and by implication, please our neighbor. Paul gets to this in Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who are reproached fell on me. Be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk worthy of him, fully pleasing him. Okay, how do we walk worthy? What pleases God? Because, friends, it'd be very easy to stop right there and use kind of hyperbole and Christian language and just say, I'm just trying to walk with the Lord. I just want to please Him. Okay, what's that look like? You know, just, just honor the Lord. I'm, I'm just bringing glory to Him. Okay, what does that word mean? Friends, sometimes we use words we don't even know what they mean. Words that are glorious and beautiful and are full of substance, but if we don't read our Bibles and fill them with the correct definitions, we are just empty cyborgs walking around speaking Bible words. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you might walk worthy, fully pleasing Him. And then notice what Paul does. There's some particular semicolons and colons and some particular language here that tells us Paul then goes into a, well, let me help you out. Let me just give you four ways that we please him. He's not just running on and on talking about spiritual things. He's very deliberate saying, this is how we please him. What does it mean to live for his pleasure? Number one. Verse 10, 
We please him through bearing fruit. We please him through bearing fruit. The language of bearing fruit and increasing, as we saw last week, is really just a repetition and a clear allusion to bearing fruit and increasing that's uh, given to us in Genesis 1.28. Paul, again, I believe, is applying this Adamic commission, the commission given to Adam to expand throughout the entire earth to believers, focusing here on, on good works and the knowledge of God, that that would bear fruit and increase This is one of the ways that Christ is fulfilling that as the second Adam, that he's causing good fruit to be born, and particularly this sort of good fruit. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that bearing fruit is one of those concepts or images that it's throughout Scripture. Of course, in the epistles, maybe you can think of a few places in the Gospels, certainly in the Psalms, Jeremiah, Genesis, that this image of bearing fruit is something that is central to what it means to be in relationship to God. Because as we read our Bibles, we have these categories of, well, there's bad fruit and good fruit. There's fruitfulness and barrenness. We also can see that there's the sort of fruit that remains, and then there's the sort of fruit that does not springs up, then it's gone. There's a sort of fruit that brings glory to God. And so we start to fill in these categories of saying bearing fruit and increasing. Paul is praying that one of the ways that we live for God's pleasure is when we bear fruit. And so from this, we're learning that bearing fruit is just this metaphorical expression that we borrow from fruit-bearing trees that we understand, that we see, that we appreciate, and which genuine Christians are compared to. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In fact, all that he does prospers. That's the sort of fruitfulness. Or when Jesus teaches in John 15, tells us flat out, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Fruitfulness and fruit-bearing is one of the main descriptions of what it means to be a Christian, that the good seed of the gospel is planted and it does something. It is effectual. And the definitions and categories of what good fruit is, as we saw last week, primarily faith in Christ and love for all the saints, become tangibly evident. Paul says, I'm praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk worthy, fully pleasing him. How? Well, for one, I'm praying you bear fruit. Fruit that brings him pleasure. The Spirit of God, working by the Word of God, produces good fruit. And friends, this is pleasing to the Lord. He delights in this. It brings him great delight to see good fruit in his people. Do you have an understanding of your Heavenly Father that's shaped by that aspect of God's Word? Yes, you know that you are incomplete, that you're not yet glorified, but the mere fact that you're not yet glorified does not mean that the Father is not pleased with you. If you are in Christ, He is fully pleased with you and is 
a result of being in Christ as fruit is born from your life, he delights to see that. It's well-pleasing to him. I have a good friend who had the habit of pointing out good fruit in the lives of others, and he would often say, I think the Lord's well-pleased by this. And it was such a striking and encouraging thing to say to another brother or sister. To see something in their life that is a biblical category of, that's good fruit. And to encourage them by just saying, I think the Lord's well-pleased in this. It reminds us of the, not only the existence of fruit, but the very delight and pleasure that it brings to God. But secondly, we please Him by increasing in the knowledge of God. This is the second half of verse 10. By increasing in the knowledge of God. Now notice the connection here. And the emphasis of Paul. These Colossian believers, they know God. He's already heard of this. But their knowledge was not yet perfected. That's why he's praying that they would know the will of God. And if it is the knowledge of God's will that we need, then it would follow that our great need is to know this God. This means, friends, that the Christian life is marked not only by fruit, but we could say it even finer, by growth. Growth is normative for the Christian life. It should be normative to hear Christians say, I didn't know that. It should be normative for Christians to say, hey, I just learned something. That is not an embarrassing mark of immaturity but it is a mark of increasing maturity. If you don't need to learn anything, that means you're in glory, that you've been perfected. And friends, I don't want to be too abrupt, but we're not there yet. And so until we're in glory, and I believe we'll continue to grow and to learn even unto God's glory, but especially now, It should not be strange as a mature believer to say, one, I don't know, and two, I just learned something. It's not like you're showing your cards and they're like, oh, I thought he was more mature. I thought he knew everything. Christians grow. And therefore, it should be normative for us to acknowledge that and not be ashamed of the things that we don't know. We should expect to grow and mature in our knowledge of God as we go on with Christ. And that means that there are things right now that you don't see or understand about Him. But you will later. So growth is normative for followers of Christ. If you've had the experience of attending your high school reunion you know how the lack of change can stand out and be really out of place and and really odd. For when you attend your 20th high school reunion and you see a 40-year-old man insisting he's still a 20-year-old man, even though his waistline and hairline are (laughs) protesting otherwise, it seems strange. Why is this man not grown up? Why is this remaining the same? And we have a category for that where we expect maturity is normative, growth is normative, and to not grow is just strange. 
And so Christian increasing in the knowledge of God and growing in the knowledge of God brings great pleasure to God. And so that means, as his people, we're not only students of Scripture, but we're humble enough to admit that we fully don't know yet. So what does it mean to increase in the knowledge of God? How do we do that? John Gill says we do it this way in part. We grow in a knowledge of God, not barely of his nature and perfections as they're displayed in the works of creation, but of his mind and will and in the mysteries of his grace as they are revealed in the gospel of the knowledge of him in Christ as the God of all grace and as a covenant God and Father. John Owen has this same thought and takes it in a similar direction. He says, this is how we are to grow in our knowledge of God. The infinite, incomprehensible excellencies of the divine nature are not proposed in Scripture as the immediate objects of our faith, nor shall they be so unto sight in heaven. The manifestation of them in Christ is the immediate object of our faith here and shall be our sight hereafter. We can never have an immediate enjoyment of God in the immensity of his nature, nor can any created understanding conceive of any such thing. God's communications of himself unto us and our enjoyment of him shall be in and by the manifestation of his glory in Christ. What Gill and Owen are saying is that God is infinite. He is amazing. He is worthy of all of our meditation and thought. But God in his grace knows we are mere babes. And for all of his greatness, he has said, I want you to know me. And I'm going to reveal myself to you in my son. What Gill and Owen are getting at is that the way that we most enjoy and grow in our knowledge of God is by coming to God through the mediator when we realize who is God in Christ? How has God revealed himself to us in the Son? We lay hold of who this God is as we come through the front door of the gospel. And we say, this God is glorious. Because we begin to discover things like his immensity and his holiness and his perfections. And we see them through the lens of the grace given to us in Christ. And they stand astoundingly to us. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you want to grow in your knowledge of God? then give yourself to and immerse yourself in the person of Christ. What do we learn of God when we consider the eternality of Christ? The incarnation of Christ. What do you see of God's glory as you consider his son's death and resurrection? What of Christ as mediator Do you consider when you see him as prophet and priest and king? What about the return of Christ? 
the future judgment and the restoration of this kingdom of righteousness in which there will be no end. What do you learn of the triune God as revealed in Christ? Give yourself to an increasing knowledge of God because this is well-pleasing in His sight. Number three, we please Him, Paul says, as we are being strengthened. Uh, Verse 11, as we're being strengthened. Now, notice how this strengthening, it's emphasized here, just a little grammar, It's helpful, I promise. Notice how this strengthening is emphasized by adding two modifiers expressing strength. With all power and according to his glorious might. So he just doesn't say, I want you to be strengthened. He modifies it with two particular angles. With all power and according to his glorious might. Now, the first modifier is the means by which the strengthening occurs. The means of God's power. And the second modifier is according to, meaning the origin of where this strengthening comes from. Is this good strengthening? Is it sufficient strengthening? Is it trustworthy strengthening? Oh, let me tell you of the origin. It is from God's glorious might. So it's not only the means, but the origin that Paul is saying, be strengthened according to his power. So from this, we could say that the Christian is being strengthened by the very means of God's power, drawing from the warehouse of God's glorious might. And this is good news for weary Christians. Because there are many days when we are so fatigued that we don't even know how to lay hold of the energy that we need. It's like there's a bowl of energy on the table. I can't even lift my hand. Just take it. I'm too weary. The means and the warehouse of the strengthening that God supplies is himself. God in his grace strengthens us by his power according to his glorious might. Friends, if this is true, we would be well served to just meditate on the power of God. Just to fill our minds and our souls with the greatness of this God who promises to strengthen us. Again, John Gill, power belongs to God is a perfection of his nature and has been and is gloriously displayed in many things, as in the creation of the heavens and the earth, as in the upholding of all things in their being, in the redemption and salvation of sinners, in their faith and conversion, in supporting saints under the various trials and exercises, and in the safekeeping of them through faith unto salvation. From this glorious power of God, saints may hope to be supplied with all might, or a sufficient supply of strength for every service and for every difficulty. Friend, if you want to strengthen your faith in God, if you want all endurance with great joy, serve yourself well by meditating upon the power of God. As Gill says there, take his formula, rubric, and work through it in creation, in redemption, in sustaining grace, in ultimate glorification. Where's the power of God seen in the Scriptures? That is the God who says, by my means and according to my origin, I'll strengthen my people. But notice before we move on the connection that Paul makes between the power of God 
and daily living. The purpose of this strengthening is that the believer would possess all endurance and patience. Consider what this actually means. We understand we need endurance only when we're stretched to exhaustion. If you've done any amount of distance running or you're into marathoning for whatever reason, you understand, you can tell I'm not by my disposition, you of all people understand there's a need for endurance. And it may hit you at different mile markers or different yard markers, but there is this sense of where I don't have what I need. And the need for endurance is felt when I'm exhausted. And the connection that Paul makes here is that the power of God is not just for bare meditation. That meditation is to serve endurance. Endurance, patience with joy. Christian, can I just warn you, don't believe the bad marketing that we so often hear. To hear that God never gives you more than you can handle is horrible counsel because it's flat out wrong. God, in his providence, often gives you more than you can handle so that you might grow in dependence on him, learning of the great joy that comes in being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So it should not be surprising to us at all when we find ourselves saying, Lord, I can't do this. I am insufficient. Lord, I don't have the endurance for this again. But you may still please him, even in that weakness, as you recognize your great need to be strengthened according to all power. Because in your weakness, you recognize your dependence And what the scriptures tell us here, that our weakness and our dependence upon this God, it's not a burden where we come to him and he says, again, again with the weakness, again with the lack of endurance. No, what this says, when we acknowledge weakness and our great dependence, remember the context of this. This is one way that we are bringing pleasure to this God. We live to his pleasure when we acknowledge our weakness and declare our need for his power. That delights your heavenly father. You please God as you declare your great need for his strength. Number four, we please him in giving thanks to the father. So this is our reminder that the sort of endurance and patience that we press forward by, it's not a A gritting of our teeth sort of endurance. It's not a scowl on our face sort of endurance. It's not a bitterness springing up in our heart sort of endurance. It's a life of endurance marked by joy and thankfulness. But again, Paul is so good to not just let us get away with cheap words that we have no substance or idea of what they mean. Because he defines this thankfulness. It's not the sort of thankfulness that a young boy offers up when his mother says, now you say thank you. And he says thank you, but has no idea as to why he's saying it or what he's really saying thank you for. That's not what Paul's doing. God's going to strengthen you and you say thanks. 
This is yet another means by which in our thankfulness we are pleasing Him. This thankfulness is cultivated and it grows up together in the consideration of what the Father has done. And what does Paul include in what the Father has done? He says we're qualified, we're delivered, we're transferred, we're redeemed. Do you notice those words that follow? Verses 12, verses 13. Christian, give thanks. This is pleasing to God. Give thanks. You are qualified. Meaning that you are made sufficient to share in the heavenly inheritance. The Father ensures that we are fit and fitted for all that we need to partake in what He has graciously provided. This means that a Christian is someone who can say with great confidence, the enjoyment of my forgiveness, of my acceptance, of my dwelling with God is most certainly mine. And the enemy may accuse And our conscience may shrink back and say, how can you honestly say that when you know how you lived this week? I say, I give thanks on the fact that I am qualified. The qualifications for my enjoyment of this are provided to me by my Heavenly Father. I give Him thanks. I am qualified to partake in this inheritance. Give thanks. We are delivered. Now, the background here is most certainly that of the Exodus, and it shades some of the texture in what Paul is saying here. Just as God delivered Israel out of Egypt in the house of bondage, it was necessary for them to be brought into the promised land through this deliverance. God delivers His people from the domain of darkness so that we might enjoy our inheritance in Christ. Now, there were many believers in this church of Colossae that were concerned about the authority of spiritual powers and Many false teachers peddling superstitious, empty ceremonies as a means of protection against the domain of darkness. But the believer gives thanks to God, to the Father, because He has most certainly delivered them from this domain of darkness. But he goes on, he says, we should give thanks because we're transferred. We give thanks... As we remember that I was once in bondage under the authority of darkness, but now I've been reassigned. Some of you may have been transferred within your vocation. Something you were thankful for, something maybe you were not thankful for. This is a good transfer. When you get this notice, you've been transferred today. No longer are you working in the domain of darkness. Uh, You have now been transferred to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of sun. That is a good day. This is a good transfer, that I am now rightly ruled, and I give thanks that though I once was dead in sin, following the course of this world, following the evil prince who ruled over the power of this world, living in the passions of my flesh, I was once a child of wrath, but God, I've been transferred. Give thanks, he says, because we're redeemed. This deliverance comes by the means of the Son's work of redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, the Exodus background here is helpful, isn't it? Already illuminating verses 12 and 13 as God brings Israel out of Egypt. Meaning God qualifies His saints for the inheritance of the kingdom based on the redemptive work of the Son. Do you know why this is important? Sin is bondage. That's why. In our natural state, sin has dominion over us. 
And the bondage and the dominion of sin produces death. It cuts us off from the kingdom of God and it leaves us in the state where we rightly deserve the wrath of God. That we are disqualified, we are unfit, we are cut off, we are awaiting destruction. And friend, if you are wondering why Christians have so much thanks and give thanks for so much, even when they're in difficult circumstances, right here, this is the reason. This announcement of the good news that's here in the scriptures, it proclaims sin is bondage and that sin is ruinous in all it touches and we are corrupted to the core in our natural state. But God, in his grace, he purchases the liberation of his people out of this bondage through the purchase price of his son's death. We are redeemed. And so we give thanks And if that is news to you this morning, we would compel you to hear this good news, to give thanks for it, because it applies to sinners like you. To repent of sin and to trust in Christ. As Paul writes to Titus, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. For this... We give thanks. And this joy and this thankfulness is pleasing unto our Lord. The gospel is bearing good fruit here, as it is in all the world. And the call of Scripture this morning is to not only give thanks for that, but to pray for more. That's what we're compelled to do. Give thanks for the good fruit and say, Lord, do more. Pray for me. That ought to be a continual request that we make to one another. And the response of God's people is to say, yes, I will. And to bow before a good and gracious Father and pray, Lord, help us to know your plan that we might live for your pleasure. That is what good fruit produces. The desire not only to say thanks, but to say more, more fruit. Help us to know your plan, that we might live for your pleasure. Our God and Father, we are so relieved to hear of the gracious work that you have done for sinners in your Son. Help us, Lord, not only to grow in thanksgiving for the good fruit that we see being born in our lives, but Lord, would you grow us and mature us in such a way that we long to know more of you, clear on what you've revealed and that the revelation of who you are in your Son would transform the way that we live, that you might receive glory unto your good pleasure. Lord, we pray that this grace would shape our lives, that it would shape our homes and vocations, our relationships, conversations, and even the, the text threads that we have, that, Lord, all that we do in word or deed would be done unto your name, that you would receive glory, that we would be found walking worthy unto your pleasure. Lord, give us such a great longing for this in our own lives.
within our church and in your church globally, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.